All right, so we are in the last week of a series that we've called Rerooted. If you haven't been here for a few weeks, or maybe you're new here, uh, we have designed a series that really has focused on the beauty of God's church, specifically the local context of God's believers, churches like this. And, and what we've been saying is that there has to come a day where we root ourselves back into the church by some of the ancient practices that we see in God's Word, things like service and sacrifice and commitment. Because we're at a point today in this day and age where there is a real question amongst believers whether or not coming to church really matters. Like, is it necessary? Do I really need it? Does it matter? As we have gained this more global identity, we have a global presence our technology has allowed us to be a million different places, but nowhere in particular. We can be in a room with thousands of other people, but we can feel alone because we're off in our own little worlds. And so technology allows us to have this global identity. We can learn everything that we really want to know about really anything. And what that has done is it's changed our preferences. We no longer prefer or sense that we need to rely or need our neighbors specifically in proximity to us. We don't feel the need to participate in our communities or any local affiliations. All of those things have lessened. Across the board, engagement and participation in our local communities has declined. Like involvement in local government has declined. A desire for local news. The local newspaper today is being squeezed out. We don't, we don't need it. All volunteer opportunities across the border are seeing decreased funding and decreased participation. Things like PTOs and scouts and business and social clubs and humanitarian causes have all seen a decline in engagement. And, and then we, as God's church, we haven't bucked this trend. Honestly, like church engagement and participation has weaned and declined over several decades now. We're not above this trend. Today, if you're an American, you're considered to be a church attender if you attend service once a month. And look, I'm not trying to c condemn any of that. Like, I get it. I know there's lots of things I do, and I know there are many of us in the room that are there. But, but let's not avoid it either and have a conversation. Why is that? You know, if you would think of your family and just think of those who attend church in your family, like how many of us in this room can count on one hand the number of our extended family that regularly attend church? And I'm not trying to talk through this to create hopelessness. Like I'm not, that's not my aim. Like we are the most hopeful people in the world because of who Christ is. Christ can take my failure and turn it into triumph through His glory and His grace. We have lots of things to be confident in. Lots of things to be grateful for. But there is a time and a space where we have to gain vision of some destructive trends that we see happening. A crisis that we see in humanity. A church that literally is at a crossroads. We have to have the ability to, to look at a 30,000 foot view of our life and really examine ourselves 
and say, is this what God would want for me? If I look at my practices, my involvement, what I want, is this what God would really want for me? If he has my best in mind, if he has our best in mind, more importantly, if he has his best in mind, does that matter to me? Do I care about that? Am I considerate of it? Or am I more considerate of myself and my preferences? And so I want to make this very clear. The church is still the hope of the world. We have the cure for the human condition. Our brokenness in sin is obvious to us. It is obvious to me in my lacking. It is obvious in our news cycle. It is felt and it is seen. We know it. And Christ is the cure for it. And He is the hope for us. Not with our efforts, but actually despite our efforts. But we find ourselves today at a crossroad as God's church. Not, I'm not talking about just our specific, but just the church here in America. There has been a trend within the church of America that is not about the equipping and the empowerment of God's people. The equipping and empowerment of God's people to obediently strive through the Holy Spirit to kill our sin. To revere the supremacy of Christ and to submit ourselves to loving our neighbors and counting them more significant than ourselves. But rather, we are more concerned with creating emotional salves that deal with the symptoms of sin in our lives, but never being serious about eradicating the disease. Creating emotions that will make me feel like God loves me. Feel like I belong. We are at a crossroads. And so in this series, we have talked about the needed change that we have to have, that we need to begin to make movements that actually want to kill sin in our life, that actually want to be humbled, to see the Savior as something that changes my vulnerabilities, to omit my shortcomings and my failings, to, to change my desire and what I'm devoted to, that we would pray that God would change our hearts. And the movements that we've talked about thus far are, are moving from consumption to communal. Consumption to communion, not, not just taking of everything, but communion under God coming together from individual to body, from consumer to individual, not seeing the things of God as things for me to have, but myself as an instrument that God gets to use in His gifts that He's given to me for His purposes and glory and for my joy. We've answered questions like, why does the church still matter? Why do we serve and how do we serve? That's where we're at. And so today, I, I want to speak about wisdom in money. And, and that may seem an unrelated subject, but I'm telling you, it is so vitally crucial that we have good wisdom when it comes to our money. Why giving matters to the church? Why giving matters to God? And we're specifically talking about money, not just stuff. There is a reason for financial giving that goes well beyond you keeping the lights on in this building or paying our salaries at, at church. It goes well beyond you giving something to God that he might like you more 
or that he might give you something down the line that you really want. And so in our time together, just to set our course today, what we want to do is really establish some basic scriptural understanding of what God wants us to do in the area of money, specifically focused on this word of tithe. Because there is a conversation in the church today around this topic of tithe. There are people on either side of this. And we want to contend then later for really foundational truths on why giving matters. And then we want to finish our time by getting really practical. Something I really don't do a whole lot is getting really nitty-gritty practical and talking about things that we need to weigh out in our lives, that we're being discipled by the world to believe that we need to consider if we want to be the type of generous people that God calls us to be. And so let's get started. Uh, when we read in Scripture when you, about the idea of finances and possession, uh, God calls this term of giving that the word tithe. And tithe literally means tenth. It means a tenth. A tenth of everything. And it roots out of, really, quite a few Old Testament books, but mainly Genesis, you can look in chapter 14, and Numbers, you can look in chapter 27. I'm not going to jump into those today, but those are things that will be good for your own reason. But understand that this term, tithe, was a requirement for God's people, the Israelites, under the Mosaic Law. Now, the Mosaic Law is these instructions and rules that God's people had to live by. As His people, there, there wasn't the, the kingdom of grace that we know with Jesus today, these were like, you've got to do these things. And tithing was required. And so it would be much like taxation today. You, like you can't get out of giving taxes on your money. Well, I should say you can't. There are many people that have figured out how to get rid of giving taxes. But in the Old Testament, giving a tithe was like giving a tax. And 10% was that number. And that number would go to support God's people working for him. So it would go to support the temple. The temple priest who, who lived in the temple worked directly for God on the behalf of God's people. They would handle people's sacrifices. They would lead ceremonies. They would lead meetings. And so here's where this dilemma begins, because there's a conversation. Today we have a new covenant. We have a new system. Christ is the perfect sacrifice, and he, as the word says, is the greater high priest. All of the systems and the covenants of the Old Testament, such as the temple and sacrifices and the priesthood, were all shadows that pointed directly to the coming Messiah in Christ. And so now that there is no longer that old covenant and the need for that old system, the question is, are we still required to tithe? I'm not required to take pigeons to a temple and kill them. So are we required to tithe? And look, this is a, a, a debated conversation. This is ongoing. There are people on both sides of this that are really smart, smarter than I am, and they have differing opinions. It's not a salvation issue. And so we can come around this issue and have a conversation. And for those who would agree that practicing tithing is a requirement still, they would come to verses like Matthew 23, 23. This is an interaction that Jesus has with the Pharisees, and he would say, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected... By the way, cumin is underrated as a spice. 
just so you guys know. Cumin, and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others, you blind guides, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. That's, that's an insult. That, Jesus got some powerful words there. They would say, those who look at tithe and say it's required, they, they would say that Jesus is saying that you ought to have done without neglecting the others as affirmation for our need to still give our tithe. And I, I think that you could build a really healthy argument there. There's a strong argument to be had there. They would say that, look, it's all God's. Everything that's in your pocket is God's. Everything that's in your bank account is God. Everything that you own is God. Every gift and talent that you have is God's. So why would you not give it to him? Now, people on the other side that would say that eh, we're not in that system anymore. Tithing is not required. They, they would say that, look, it's, we don't kill goats. That's an old system. We aren't required to tithe anymore. In fact, they would say that, look, God's people aren't nation states anymore. The reason the tithe was important because God's people at the time, the Israelites, lived in a particular region. They were a set-apart people, and God used that money for the operations of that nation states. There are no nation states anymore. God lives in the hearts of all who trust in Christ by faith. It's just different today. And they would point out that when Jesus said these words in Matthew 23, it was before he died. It was before his crucifixion. And he's affirming practices in the Jewish culture that he's not asking them to leave. He didn't ask the Jewish people to stop doing their practices. He just said, believe in me. But they would also contend that in every conversation in the New Testament about generosity and being generous, it never includes language of tithe. It doesn't include a command to give or an order that you must give. It says that one must be a cheerful giver. One must be a sacrificial giver. And this too, honestly, you can make sound, logical arguments here. And so here's where I, I'm going to sit, and here's where I'm going to kind of come to you where, where I'm sitting in this. The question that is being debated here is not should I give, but it's, am I required to give? And the answer to that question can never be yes. In light of what Jesus did, it can never be yes, because your faith is the only requirement for salvation. Your money buys you nothing. It buys you nothing. Faith alone, by grace alone, in Christ alone, we should be generous with what we have because of what Christ has the question isn't really, are we required to, but why wouldn't we? In light of all what Christ was done, should I give? Yes. Should I do 10%? Sure. That's a great starting point. Should I do more? Yeah. Go for it. Because here's the thing, 10% is a lot for many of you, but it's not for some of us. God has called us to be a sacrificial giver a cheerful giver. And so giving is not a requirement, but sacrifice and generosity are evidences of a heart that's been changed and redeemed by God. They, they're evidences. There's this powerful story in the Gospel of Mark about a widow and two copper coins. And we'll read this together. 
is a powerful story about generosity. He said he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums, and a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all these who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty has put everything she had in, all that she has lived on. And so understand, like, tithing is not your requirement as much as it is as an evidence of the flourishing nature of the Holy Spirit living inside of God's people. It's not about, do I really need to? But really about, how much am I willing to? They're not requirements, but they're evidences. And so we want to talk about really four reasons that are foundational in why generosity in giving is important. And, and hear me say this. My aim is never, like it's not to like guilt and shame you with Scripture to say, you ought to be doing this. That's not my aim. Look, I write these things for me too. My hope is we convey by reading Scripture that God is just simply better. That His wisdom is just simply better. That His truth is just simply better than what we've ever been told or taught. And so four foundational reasons why generosity is so important. Number one is this, is it sets God as the priority. Nothing determines your priorities more than where you're willing to invest your money, what you're willing to put your money towards. So one of the most foundational and good reasons for being a generous person who ties with their money is because it creates an attitude that is different because of it. Not just giving, but sacrificial giving. Giving more than I'm comfortable with. Jesus says they gave out of their abundance, but this lady gave out of everything that she has. If, if it doesn't affect the way that we live, if it doesn't affect the way that we do things, is it really sacrificial in giving? And so this sets this tone in a life as a symbol of how God wants us to live as stewards and not as owners. Like, steward means that it's somebody else's possession that I'm watching over. And this idea of putting our money and giving our money to God and being generous with God's people compels this idea that we are stewards and not owners. Ownership is a Western philosophy. It is not a biblical philosophy. And that's not saying that you shouldn't own things and care for things. That's good stewardship. It just means that you don't own things, care for things, and keep them. That's not a biblical idea. That's hoarding. Biblical generosity is about creating and practicing our identity as stewards and not as owners. And it puts God as our priority in life. Because if we don't make God the priority in our life, if we don't sacrifice to make Him the priority in our life, your money will certainly find its way into that position. In 1 Timothy, there's these really powerful grouping of verses that say, but godliness with contentment is great gain. For we bought, brought nothing into the world and we cannot take any out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, 
into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs or many pain. And so our generosity, listen, our generosity absolutely wars against money taking the throne that only God has earned in our life. Our generosity wars against money taking the throne that only God has earned in our life. And the second reason why generosity, specifically in money, matters is because it sees giving as better than gaining. Our Savior, by nature, is a giver. Our Savior gave the ultimate price for us. And His gospel compels those who believe in Him to generously give themselves away to others, to count others more significant than ourselves. And we've talked about this for close to two weeks of of we are here to serve one another, to humble ourselves and and encourage one another, to come around and and give what we can. That doesn't always be money. That can be giving a, a hug or a tear, an encouragement, and our stuff, and our money. And this idea of like this abundant generosity is biblical, but it's not only biblical, like the world knows it. Like sociology gets this. Like if you're going to look at a sociology report on generosity, it would say this, that abundant givers, people who are abundantly generous, they have lower blood pressure, they have less they have a reduced risk for heart disease. They have longer life expectancies. They have a lower risk of dementia. Like, isn't it crazy how the world sees the wisdom of the Bible and agrees with it? It's just better wisdom. When Jesus said, blessed is he who gives, or it, it should say, it is more blessed to give than it is received. Like, he meant it. Like, literally meant that it is. Literally. The third foundational truth and why it matters is it believes in deferred favor. Generosity believes in deferred favor. We are not a people that are victims, that are just giving away our stuff, like, oh, look at my struggle. I'm just going to suffer. I'm going to give this all away so you can pity me and look how low that I am. That's not why we give. We give because we actually believe that God, when he said, I'm going to give it back to you, that we actually believe that God is going to give it back to us with interest. Now, when I say that, I'm always careful because there's always new people in there. Like, what I'm not saying is plant a seed into this church and you're going to get money back fourfold. That's not what I'm saying. What I am saying is that God has promised to repay that. And that may not come in money. That may come in peace. That may come in status. That may come someday in eternity. But when God said that he's going to give it back to you, you can believe that. You can take it to the bank. So we always have to be a people that have eternity in mind and not just our moment, that we give what we can when we can because we believe that God will give it back. In Matthew, Jesus says these words. He says, Do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up your, for yourself treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. 
For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. We trust God that we are storing up treasures in another place for another time. It's not about the moment, it's about eternity. And then the last idea is, is simply freedom. And we've talked about freedom in lots of different ways, but when the Apostle Paul says in the book of Galatians, for it is freedom that Christ has set us free, and he says, stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. Like, Christ has set us free. What this is implying is that because of Christ, we're not to attach ourselves to anything else besides his sovereignty, his sufficiency, that we are to see Christ as supreme and not become a slave to anything in this world. Our stuff can do that. But when you believe that Christ is all that you need, it allows us to live open-handed lives where literally you can take and have what you want because I know that God is going to see me through it as hard as it may be, that God is going to see me through these things. He's going to bring about his glory. And listen, it's always going to be for my joy. So generosity sets these foundational truths where we set God as the priority. We see giving as better than gaining. We believe in deferred favor. And we actually believe it's actual freedom. This is the wisdom and generosity. We are not required to give, but why wouldn't we? Why wouldn't we with this kind of wisdom and truth behind what it means to be generous. And I think that sometimes we think in the area of generosity and why we think generosity is important, we think that God's just trying to be greedy. God just wants my stuff. But it's designed for generosity. is actually out of his love. It's actually out of your thriving. It's actually out of what he's already done for you. And he compels this kind of beautiful wisdom. And so in light of all the things that we've just talked about in this area, I want to walk into some very practical sets. Not, not to tell you how much you should give, but really to set yourself up to being a generous person, a generous giver. Look, we are being discipled increasingly by a world that doesn't know Christ. And we are being led astray by this culture to follow a wisdom that is, other, uh, that is not God's. We have been compelled by so much wisdom about why money is important, why you need to hoard it, why you should hold on to it, why you should get stuff. Let us take some time to compel why it's important that we change in light of what Christ has said, in light of God's wisdom. So here's some changes that we need to consider as we think of godly wisdom. Number one is this. We've got to become insiders and not outsiders. Now, I'll apologize if you're a marketing major or an advertising major, but look, marketing and advertising is destroying this culture. We are being sold things, and look, you don't need to be sold much in your lacking to, to think that you need it. It is destroying our culture, and we have a tendency to please ourselves, so we see lots of things, and we say, I need that! I want it! Today it's said that six out of ten Americans live paycheck to paycheck or worse. Look, I'm not, look, I get it. I'm not trying to be insensitive with that. I'm actually trying to be kind, I think. Trying to be kind. We really need to consider, in light of what Jesus has done, because of Jesus, what do we really need? We have put value on stuff 
and floor space and distraction. And that's what we buy for. But if we really believe what Jesus has compelled us and taught us, it might mean that we might consider selling our house to actually live in something we can afford, that we could be generous. It would actually mean that we might not get the nicest and newest things. It might mean that we sell a car or sell a boat or sell our stuff. It may mean that we change the way that we eat or the way that we do entertainment. It may mean that we consider God first primary in our finances than ourselves. We have to get inside of our means. This is part of biblical flourishing. Like, look, if you could take a 30-foot, 1,000-foot view of your life and your lifestyle and your story, you would see all the hustle and all the clawing and crawling to keep all the plates spinning in your life, to get everybody what they need and make sure all the bills are paid. You would look at it and you say, that's not thriving. In fact, that's just me trying to survive. But we live in such a moment-to-moment world that we never really take the chance to get above our lives and be introspective on whether this is working. Because look, it's not working for many of us. There is a burden on us because of our debt, because of our lifestyle, that God wants to relieve. He doesn't want to see you walk in that. The, the second thing is, is that we have to find simplicity in complexity. Like This world is chaotic. I get it. We should strive to be simple people. We have a simple gospel. Faith alone, by grace alone, in Christ alone. We should desire to be simple people. Like We, we knock millennials all the time. Sorry, millennials. But one of the things that they do really well is how they handle stuff. Millennials have a better grasp on stuff than any of the previous generations. And so we need to remind ourselves, like at the end of this life, it's going to go in a dumpster, a garage sale, or it's going to go to our kids. And if I'm your kid, it's going in a dumpster, right? Because I'm just not handling it. And, and look, this is, this is what the Bible pushes on us. But listen, again, sociology the world looks at this and says, that's right and good because there's a link to clutter and hoarding that links itself to mental illness. There is so much that, that we have to deal with because of the clutter in our lives. It takes away our attention on what we should focus on. It makes it more difficult for us to relax mentally and physically. It signals to our brain that our work is never finished. It creates guilt and embarrassment uh, that somebody might actually stop by my house. It creates anxiety because we can never find what we're looking for. Look, I'm not trying to be insensitive. But I'm saying in light of Christ and His wisdom, this is a worldly wisdom thing. Could we walk towards this? Getting rid of our stuff could be the most important sacrifice that we need to make in our lives. And the last thing is that we need to feed the right things. We said money earlier, we said money is linked to evil. And if we're not careful, it will take a hold of us. Just, you know that. You feel it every day. That money and 
it can have an unhealthy spot in your life. We need to feed the right things. And feeding the right things have this ability to create the right priorities in our life. They have the ability to make better boundaries for us. So where and how we spend our money will say a lot to the type of life that we have, the type of people we'll become, and the type of influence that we want to have. The most powerful and loud voices in our culture teach us consumption. Get it! You need it! But it is the kind and peaceful voice of our Savior that says we need to be generous towards others. That we need to be generous towards each other. Because I love you. And I want better for you. Our question is always about will we believe that? Will we trust and will we defer our wisdom to his? So lots to think about in money. And look, I say none of this because I want a bigger tithe, a better salary. I really do not care. It is, it is everything to do with wanting us to thrive as a church and as a people that we would be salt and light to the world. Because if we're not salt and light in money, we are missing opportunities for people to see the radical difference that Christ makes in our life. So today, as we close out this series, one of the things that we want to do is just submit ourselves to the beauty of Christ and, and marvel at his sacrifice. We're going to come around the table of communion today, and we're going to appreciate and remember the sacrifice of Christ that that saved us from our own sins, that redeemed us and made us whole again. And so we'll eat of the bread that represents the broken body of Christ on the cross and and take of the juice that represents the blood of Christ for the forgiveness of our sins. But could we all take a moment before we celebrate at this table and just have reflection in our life and, and just lay things out before God that we would have moments of vulnerability to say, God, I'm pursuing my own wisdom here. I have made this more about me than you. I need that time. And in that time, can we think of, you know, Lord, I need to make this right. Forgive me for this. And so let's take a moment, and the band's going to come out here after I pray. Take as much time as you need and talk to God, but at a certain point you can join us around the table. And look, we, we say this every time we do communion. If you're not a believer, like if you haven't made a personal relationship with Christ, like, look, we love, we love that you're here. That we exist for you. But know that this is for the family of God. I would love to talk to you about having a relationship with Jesus. And I would love to celebrate your first communion today. But know that it's okay just to sit there and pray as others in the family celebrate what Christ has done. Would you pray with me? Jesus, we just come before you today, and this is tricky. Money just has a thing in us. And it's hard to break it. And so, God, will you compel us with better wisdom? Will you, through your conviction, help us to be vulnerable enough to desire something different? That we would lay down our pride, lay down our justifications, and that we would just simply trust you. That you've called us to freedom, that you've called us generosity, and you've called us to those things not because you're greedy or controlling, but simply because you love us. So God, be with us today. Let your spirit speak to our hearts. 
And we pray this in the name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen.